Many years ago, many, many years ago, when I got out of college, I got a job working for a retail establishment, and they had stores, not a lot of stores, but they had stores throughout the eastern and northern southern states. And because I was single at the time, hadn't met Shirley, um, because I was single at the time, I was the easiest one to move uh, when a store needed someone to work there. And so I was transferred to Lexington, Kentucky, and the store that I managed right next to it was a barber shop. And, you know, when you're there and you don't have customers all day, I got to know the barber, and, and he liked to go to horse races. And if you're familiar with Lexington, Kentucky, that is the home pretty much of thoroughbred horse racing. And so one evening he says, hey, I'm going to the races tonight. Would you like to go with me? And I said, well, sure, I'll go. And I have to tell you that I don't care if that horse is only worth $500 or that horse is worth $500 million. When those horses come around that final turn, you know why they call that the sport of kings because they are the most beautiful animals when they come around. It's just an awesome sight to behold. And I say all that to tell you a story that I recently heard. You know, in horse racing, horses don't always win all the time. They're not all secretariats. But there was this one jockey that he was invariably winning all the time, just about every race that he won. And of course, the stewards were concerned about what was going on. You know, was he cheating? Was he doing something? And, and they're checking all this out, and they can find, can't find anything. And so they're watching the films, and they're watching the films of all the races. And they noticed, as no matter where that horse was in the field, as they were coming around and, and coming into the back stretch, that the jockey would lean forward way high in the saddle, and he would, they could see his lips moving into the ears of the horse. And they thought, something's going on there. So they brought the jockey in and they said, you know, we're concerned, you know, we think something's going on here that's not legal. And the only thing that we can determine is that in every one of your races, as that horse is coming around the back stretch, you lean forward and you whisper something into that horse's ear. Are you spitting some kind of chemical or something? He says, no. He says, I'm just telling the horse a poem. And they said, a poem? And he said, yeah. Roses are red, violets are blue. Horses that don't win are made into glue. <laughs> Motivation. Motivation. That's what we're talking about this morning. Motivation. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. What motivated him to deal with all that he had to deal with in his being an apostle of Jesus Christ and his care and concern about the churches? What motivated him? And he answers that in Philippians chapter 3. He says, what motivates me is that goal. What motivates me is the resurrection, and the implication is to spend an eternal home with God in heaven. Now, he wasn't talking about just the general resurrection. John says in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, there's resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. He knew 
that everyone in the grave would be resurrected. But he was talking about this resurrection that he knew was sure for him. That resurrection of life. And he says, that's my motivation. And so in writing to the Philippians here, as he's dealing with those that would try to steal that from them, he gives them that information that we read about in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, guess where we're going to be? We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, we're going to be anchored there this morning. We're going to go through pretty much the whole chapter. In in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same two things to you is not tedious. So he must have included that to other people. To write these things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And the thought there is it's a safeguard. In other words, this may not have come to your doorstep right at this moment, but I want you to be aware. You know, when our kids are teenagers... And they start going out with their friends, especially when they start driving. All parents have a checklist, don't they? Don't go without any money. You need money, I'll give you money. Don't speed. Don't stay out late. Don't go to this place. There's just a whole checklist. And we don't necessarily expect them to do that, but we tell them that. Why? To safeguard them. Don't get yourself in this type of situation because it's going to put you in a situation that you're not ready to handle. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you as a safeguard so you're prepared if they come and sit at your door. And part of the New Testament is a safeguard for us that God tells us these things when trials come to us, when difficulties come to us, when problems come to us, when aggravating brethren come to us, whatever it may be. That we have a safeguard. We have something that we can turn to and say, okay, here's what the Lord says in this thing. Here's what I should do. So Paul says, I'm writing these things as a safeguard. And notice what he says. He says in verse verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Paul's not talking about four-legged dogs there. What he's talking about is he's calling these individuals who he's referring to as their scavengers. In the New Testament times, dogs were not those pets that we all share with our friends, you know, on Facebook, you know, we got our picture with our pet, or as we get older and we have those family pictures, you know, instead of our kids, we put the dog up there in the pictures with us, you know, because we love this animal like we love like we loved our child. Sometimes even more than we loved our child. That's a whole nother lesson. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Dogs were scavengers. They were not pets like we know it. And he says these individuals that he talks about, they're scavengers. And when I think about that, I think about those that that are seeking to take bits and pieces. You know, scavengers just don't run in and steal a whole hog or steal a whole beef or something. They go in and take a little piece. They, They grab a bite fool and then they run back where they can be safe. And there are people in the world, brothers and sisters that are scavengers. They're dogs. 
Sometimes they're within our own brotherhood. In the context here, I believe Paul's talking about the Jews, and we'll get into that a little further. But there, we have brethren today that want to steal our freedoms in Christ. They want to bind on us something that, hasn't, that it, God hasn't bound, and they want to take away those liberties that we have in Christ. They're scavengers. They just pick a little here. They pick a little there. They pick a little there. They're dogs. Paul says, beware of those. He says, beware of evil workers. Notice how he says that. He doesn't say beware of evil, but beware of evil workers. You know, there are those that are actively engaged in doing what is wrong. You can tell them what is right. You can show them what is right. You can preach to them what is right. You can share the gospel to them about what is right, but no, they're going to do things their way, actively engaged in evil. Paul says to be aware of those. He says, beware of the mutilation. This really had to hit home to those first century Jews. Because back in Genesis chapter 17, God takes Abraham and he says, here's this sign this symbol, this physical symbol that you and your descendants and I, God speaking, are in a covenant relationship. And that sign was the circumcision of males. It was done on the eighth day. Every male that was a descendant of Abraham needed to be circumcised. If someone, a stranger, came and allied themselves with the family of Abraham, they needed to be circumcised. God says, this is the sign. This is that which represents that we are in a covenant relationship. And here's the Apostle Paul says, it's mutilation. In other words, what he was saying is, you think that because you have this sign of the covenant, you are God's people. But you're not God's people of all. You just mutilated yourself. He's going to say circumcision, the true circumcision, is a circumcision of the heart. So Paul says, beware, there are those that are going to try to scavenge your faith. They're going to pick at it. They're going to take little pieces of it until they draw you away from what God would have you to be. They're like scavengers. There are going to be those that practice or constantly make it a habit of doing evil. They are evil workers. And there are going to be those that think they are the people of God, but they are not. They've just mutilated that relationship with God. Paul says, beware, and you need to beware of it because it's a safeguard. And so you and I have to understand that if we're going to reach heaven, if we're going to attain, as the Apostle Paul says, that resurrection, that resurrection of life, we have to have a proper perspective concerning our earthly relationships. And by relationships, I just don't mean relationships with people, though obviously that comes into play. But it could be relationships with our careers. It could be relationships with our family. It could be relationships with our material things. 
And the point being that Paul, in a broader sense here, is that these things can become dogs. These things can become evil workers. These things can become a perversion of our covenant relationship with God. Might as well put recreation in there, too. And he says some people will actively try to keep you and me from entering heaven. They're dogs. They're evil workers. They're people who are mutilated. It says in verse 3 and 4, For we are the circumcision. We're the true covenant people of God who worship God in spirit, in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, and if anyone else thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I may, I more so. And so Paul's saying here, the true circumcision, the true people of God, he says, are those who worship God in the spirit and those who rejoice in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the things of this world. Wow. Could I say, I put no confidence in the things of this world? Could I truly say that I've just given it all to God? It's a little more difficult to do, isn't it, than what we think. How many here plan for their retirement? I did, a little bit. Some of you I know have too. You have 401ks and things like that. When we think about those years as we come into them, do we put more confidence in that 401k and Social Security and those things than our relationship with God? Are we more concerned about that and worry more about that than we do our relationship with God. Years ago, before I started preaching, some of you may remember or are familiar with the phrase Black Monday. It was probably about uh, maybe oh, 35 years ago. Stock market fell in one day. And at that time, the job that I had, I worked for a lot of wealthy people. I was a subcontractor for a furniture store. And I can remember as I would go into these wealthy people's homes that every television was on what was the, the financial channel. They used to have one. I don't know if they still do, but it was on the financial uh, channel. And they were, they were watching the stock market just fall and fall and fall and fall all day. And I can remember, I can still remember, you know, one client saying, I just lost another $100,000. I just lost another, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. I think all of us would be concerned about that. But would we be so concerned that we still wouldn't trust in God? 
Paul says, we're the true circumcision of God. You and I as New Testament Christian are the true covenant of God. The true covenant people of God. And inherent in that are some promises that God makes. That he knows we need some things in this life. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. And that he will provide for those things. He tells us that he will never leave nor forsake us. He tells us he'll respond to our prayers if we ask according to his will. 1 John chapter 5. And all these things we're told and yet. Sometimes these earthly relationships that we have take a greater precedent than our relationship with God. We think about the Jews in the first century. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we're told by, as John tells us, that, that the Jews rested their relationship with God upon their ancestry, being a descendant of Abraham. And John the baptizer said, you know, you shouldn't do that because God could raise up descendant of Abraham's from these stones. In other words, you're putting your trust in your relationship with God because you could just, you know, follow your lineage back to Abraham. That doesn't mean anything. It just means you're a descendant of Abraham. The Jews in Paul's day boasted of having their law, the law given by Moses. If you read Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29, Paul talks about you boast in the law. And their boast was God's given us a law, so we're right with God. We may not keep it, but God's given it to us, so we must be special so we're in a good relationship with God. Paul said, no, no, it's always been a faith system. You've messed up here. Some Jewish Christians and Jews taught that one must be circumcised, must become part of that follow the law of Moses in order to be a New Testament Christian. In Acts chapter 15, we read where the apostles and, and the elders in Jerusalem got together with Paul and Silas, and, and they realized that they were binding something that God is not bound, that the true circumcised were those that worshiped God in the Spirit and rejoiced in Jesus Christ, not holding the law of Moses. And Paul writing to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, who, here where they were, I think they were, were beginning to think, well, we need to incorporate this law of Moses into Christianity. And Paul says, hey, if anybody preached to you any other gospel than what I've preached to you, let him be accursed. He says, if an angel from heaven or we apostles preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. And what Paul was saying is, what they were preaching wasn't the gospel. It was a perversion. A perversion. So Paul understood that some relationships had to be severed if he was going to see and experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that eternal home with God. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if any else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day. I was on the right way. Hey, God, they God said the eighth day. That's me. Of the stock of Israel. My family weren't proselytes. We can trace our lineage all the way back to Abraham. Stock of Israel. Tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin, you know, when all the ten tribes went north, and they went into idolatry. There was only two that remained in the south. And though we stumbled, 
We always worship God. We may have incorporated some idolatry in there, but we always worship God. And who were they? Judah and Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin. He goes on and he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not a Grecian, Hellenist. I'm not a Hellenist. I can speak the Hebrew language. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And I'm a Pharisee of the sect of Pharisee. I believe the whole Old Testament. I'm just not like the Sadducees that only follow the first five books of the law. I believe that everything that God said, the prophets, that it's all inspired of God. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, not only did I believe it, I lived it. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. When I messed up, when I sinned, when I failed in keeping the law, I immediately went and did those sacrifices and whatever it was that God wanted me to do that I might be blameless in his eyes. Think Paul was a good Jew? Notice what he says. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What's Paul saying? Those relationships, that relationship means nothing to me. Some translations for rubbish will say dung. In polite society, I cannot convey to you how strong that word is. If you think of the strongest word that would describe rubbish or the strongest word that would describe dung, It's stronger than that. I was reading just the other day because I thought I was going to use it as an illustration in the sermon. There was a dump in Brazil. And if I remember right, I'm going to say there's like 100 tons of refuse that were dropped there every day. And there was a whole community of people that made their living, if I can say those word, that word living, from going through this refuse that to find anything of value to sell and to provide their daily bread. And as I read that, I thought about Ghana. And, and to give you an example... If a Ghanaian throws something away, there is absolutely no use for that at all. In all my years in Ghana, I can't remember, I don't know if Chad will verify this or David or Forrest or the other ones that have been there, but in all my years in Ghana, I have never seen a human being at a dump sifting through for something that was of value. That's the message Paul's trying to say here about that relationship he had to physical Israel. 
It's of absolutely no value at all to him. So what's the application for you and I? The application for you and I is, what relationship do you and I have with our job, with our families, with our material things, with our recreation? Is there a relationship in our life that when it comes between that and it comes to tr between, uh, between that and Christ, that we would give that, if not precedence, at least equality. Paul says, got it all mixed up. It has our relation compared to our relationship with Christ. Everything else is worthless. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, okay, you know, you can stop loving your wife, stop loving your children, and those, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because clearly the Bible teaches, Christ teaches, where the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves their church. And parents are to raise their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And, and, and we're to, um, if we don't provide for our families, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, we're worse than an infidel, worse than an idolater. So all those things are incorporated in our relationship with Christ. But when the things take precedence over Christ, then we've got things out of whack. We're not in the balance that God wants us to be. Paul's saying, I've got to be willing to give those up. If it comes between me and Christ, there's no, there's no discussion there. Between Christ and this relationship, whatever it be, if it's hindering me and my cause to Christ, I have to look at it as something that is worthless. And there are people that will try to destroy our relationship with Christ. And sometimes, sometimes they're the ones that we care about most. There's a sister that worshiped here, and she told me her husband, he'd say, you know, you go to church on Sunday. And that's the only day we got for our family day. She doesn't come anymore. Paul's saying, those things of this life can never take precedence over our relationship with him. But what things were gained to me, I have counted lost for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as, uh, as rubbish that I may, be, uh, may gain Christ. Here's, here he tells us why. One, he counts all those things as rubbish because one, that he might gain Christ. I want to, Paul saying, I want to be in that proper relationship with Christ. Two, I might be found in him. 
Not having my own righteousness, not that I've earned it, that this makes me special because I've done this, which is from the law, but what that is just through that, that relationship with them, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Third notice, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul saying? All those things are as nothing to me when it comes to what is waiting for me. And I have to remember, I have to be aware, I have to safeguard to make sure that I don't allow the things of this world to hinder me, to scavenge me, to mutilate me from that goal that I'm seeking. So what's Paul say that he does? Not that I have already attained. I haven't reached the resurrection. I haven't reached heaven. Not that I've already attained nor am already perfected. I haven't come to the completeness of this, to the end of this, but I press on. I'm trying to think of, of a word that, that would, or something that would convey this idea of pressing on. And, um, you know, if you watch the Olympics and you see those runners and, and you see, you know, especially, well, I guess all runners, but I, mostly I, I envision this in the sprinters. As you watch those sprinters run towards the tape, when, when they get down to that last step, last step and a half, you'll see them leaning forward and you think, oh, they're going to fall, they're going to fall. And, and that's the thought, pressing on, that, that, that you're stretching out. And, and I thought about that and then I, ever, I thought, do you ever, you know, you're in your chair or something and, and you drop something on the floor, you drop your keys or something and you... You can't quite get to them, and, and, and you don't want to get out of the chair, and, and you reach out to get it. And you keep reaching out to get it, and you keep stretching, you know. And then you finally get it, but you've stretched out so much, now your shoulder hurts because you stretched your muscle. That ever happened to anybody? Me either. <laughs> yeah, it does. We do that all the time. Well, that's the thought. Paul just stretched out as far as he could to get this. I lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press, I stretch, I reach, I lean toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Think about in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 12. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. And there in that thought there is just take that off like a garment. Take that off and start stretching, reaching, striving, 
for that goal. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, as any that understands, I don't, not, I don't think here uh, one of the Greek lexicons says it's not a matter of, of ma like material, uh, maturity like we think mature Christian, but, but those that understand what Paul's saying, that have this knowledge of that and this use, though it can mean maturity in other places, he says, let as many of us that mature have this, understand this, have this mind, uh, and if any who think otherwise, which suggests, by the way that it's used there, that some were thinking different, God, Paul says, God will take care, reveal even to this you. Nevertheless, to the, degree, to, to the degree which we have attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. In other words, we need to be together on this. If you want to have, achieve that resurrection of Christ in heaven, if I want to achieve that resurrection of Christ and that uh, being in heaven with him, then I have to have the same mind as Christ. I have to understand, though this world can be wonderful in many ways, and though the relationships we have in this world can be very helpful and satisfying in many ways, when it comes to my relationship with Christ, that takes precedent. To the point, if need be, I have to consider this world's relationships as worthless. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. He says, look out from among you. Look and see those, and it's easy to tell as we're talking with each other, those that are anchored in this world and those that are anchored in heaven. Doesn't take long to figure it out, does it? Does it? He says, those you see who are anchored in heaven, he says, follow their example. Follow my example, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, as he follows Christ. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose glory is, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Two types of people. Sadly, sometimes two types of Christians. Those who mind are on this world. Set their mind on earthly things. More concerned about the physical than the spiritual. And then there's the other group. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our home. That's where our passport is stamped, in heaven. Remember the first time I went to Ghana, and while I was there, I got horribly sick. And if you know Ted, he's, he's not Mr. Compassion, but he did tell me, he says, I think you're going to die. <laughs> And I was that sick. And I remember when I stepped off the plane, I'm pretty sure it was at Tampa. Tampa or Tampa, I think, at that time. And I thought, I am so thankful to be home. To be home. 
And that was Tampa. Shirley said when I walked up the ramp, she said I was green. She knew something was wrong. But we understand that. We go away, we go traveling, and, and, and to come home, that's what it's going to be like thus that are God's people. Heaven's not going to be on a, going on a vacation. It's going to be going home. It's going to be going home where our heavenly Father is, where our brother Jesus Christ is, where the Holy Spirit is. It's going to be going home. And when we get there, we're going to do far more than like we do here when we get home and say, oh, man, finally, it'll be a time of joy and, and worship and praise to God, a time where there's no sorrow, no pain, and no tears. It's going to be going home. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait. We want Jesus to come get us. Because in this world there is trials and in this world there is sickness and in this world there is pain and suffering. Lord, come quickly. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, our sickly, our frail body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things as himself. Which one of us would not want that? Which one of us who love God has not said in our life in those times of difficulties, in those times of pain, in those times when it just seems like nothing's going right, Lord, come quickly. Lord, I'm ready. I am tired of this foolishness. I think we all have thought about that. And Paul says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Is there something, is there a relationship that's keeping you from what God would have you to be? You need to lay it aside. If we can help in any way, we will. If we can pray for you, we will. If you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Christ, then there is something that's holding you back. There is something that's hindering you from obeying the gospel. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you know that you should obey the Christ and you know that you should give your life to him through baptism and you are not doing it, there is something that is holding you back and that which is holding you back is not good because God wants all to be saved and if you're aware that you need to and you're not doing it, then you're aware of what's right and wrong and of your relationship with God and you've come to the age of accountability. You can't say, I don't know God. I wasn't sure God by the very fact that you think that you should, you must. And what may be holding you is that you're not willing to count all things for loss. For that eternal home with God in heaven. 
There's a reason we sing the song. Heaven is surely worth it all. Because it is. And it will be. If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, we urge you to come as we sing this song of encouragement.